We're picking up today with Dr. Oliver Sacks. Yesterday we had the full hour, an hour of him, talking about his earlier book dealing with migraine, the history, his own experience, A Leg to Stand On, and Awakenings, the book called a classic by Doris Lessing and W.H. Auden. And Harold Pinter adapted one of the case histories into a play. But we continue with this book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, Case Histories of is aphasiacs and agnosiacs a good description of the subjects? Not, I hate to use the word subject. The people yeah. of this book, um, heroes and heroines. Well, well, there are all sorts of people. The yeah. you know my uh, there there are twenty four these clinical tales, and they're really really twenty four themes. Um, some of them like uh, the amnesia, Jimmy the amnesiac, and and the music professor, Doctor P, the agnosiac, and the aphasiacs. Um, uh, these are people who have who have lost various powers, but I also talk about patients who seem to have almost exaggerated powers uh, or or energies of one sort or another. I think uh, I think neurology doesn't neurology's favorite word is, is deficit yeah. or, or dysfunction. Yeah. But sometimes I think one needs to see a, a hyperfunction and uh, a uh, an, an excess of some sort which can be very impressive, but somehow un unbalance the person yeah. I'm the other way. I'm two very thrilling case histories dealing with healing. And one is the old lady, Madeline J, and you call that hands. Yes, this, um, at first sight, uh, Madeline was a very pathetic woman with, with cerebral palsy and also congenital blindness. She'd been looked after by her parents and then later by a sister, and then with the death of her parents and the illness of her sister, she came into our home. She was 60 at the time. Uh, given this double thing, or really this triple thing of, of, um, of cerebral palsy, blindness and dependence, I thought she would be retarded or regressed. She was nothing of the sort. She was a brilliant woman, um, fascinating, uh, literate talker, exceptionally well-read. And I, I, I said, you, uh, you seem to have read a tremendous amount. You must, you must read Braille very fluently. And she said, no. She said, um, the reading was all done to her, or, or there were talking books. She said she couldn't read Braille at all. She couldn't do anything with her hands. And she, she held them. Uh, she, she, she referred to them. She, she, she said they were useless, godforsaken lumps of dough. That was, that lumps was of dough. Lumps of dough. Mm. Um, and I found this very strange. One doesn't expect the hands to be involved in cerebral palsy. I mean, they might be a little spastic, they might have some abnormal postures, but they tend to be, to have some use. They certainly feel as if they're part of one. And she referred to them as, as, as bits of dough. I wondered if, if there was nerve damage or something, but I found that uh, sensation on the hands, pinprick, light touch, uh, was felt. But she didn't use the hands to explore anything. She couldn't recognize anything. I put a comb in her hands. I put other things. I put one of my own hands, and her, her hand didn't respond. And, and indeed, it acted like a lump of dough. And I, I thought... Um, I thought, what the hell's going on? How has this come about? And also, is there anything one might do about it? The only thing I could 
figure, or what I guessed at, I wondered whether, with a mixture of her, having cerebral palsy in being blind, being doubly disabled, maybe having doting, overprotective parents, maybe she was carried around and had everything done for and her. never used her hands. And never used her hands. Uh. And whether now, 60 years later, uh, she could learn what she should have learned in the first three months of life. And uh, the question was, how could we get her to use her hands? I mean, even the phrase, use your hands, mm. would have no meaning to her. But she'd say, I have no hands to use. Um, I thought we'd somehow have to... Um, uh, Goethe writes, in the beginning is the deed. Um, she had to do something. And in a way, I felt we had to trick her into doing something in a different way with, um, uh, I was going to say, with my own leg thing. I had to be tricked into walking and, la and later tricked into swimming. Uh, sometimes, sometimes only the spontaneous will do it. I thought of reaching. I thought of, of, of infants reaching for the breast, for, for, for aliment, for nourishment. I said to the nurses, um, put her food a little out of reach. I said, don't, don't torment her, but just um, don't make it too easy and be, be a little slow. And let's see what happens. And one day, without thinking and, and, and impulsively, uh, Madeline did what she, what she had never done before, which is she stretched out an arm and a hand and she grabbed the food whose smell had been, the smell of warm bread had been tickling her nostrils, and her hand went out, and she found a bagel. And uh, this was her first motor act. Sherrington sometimes talks about the motor individual, the person who... You know, you do something stunning here. You, you draw an analogy between her, found the bagel, bagelhood as the first word Helen Keller, yeah. blind, mute, was yeah. water, yeah. wow, wow. Yeah. waterhood. Yeah, um, and there's an analogy, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I couldn't help thinking of that. I, well, um, yeah. There has to be a first, a first perception and a first word. It was, it was water for Helen Keller, and, and the idea of, of what I call waterhood, and it was a bagel and and, and bagelhood. Uh, uh, what happened with uh, Madeline, um, the sixty-year-old? Um, all right. Well, given the first perception as when Helen Keller was given the first word, she moved with extraordinary speed. So that, um, and suddenly from, from her hands being inert, uh, uh, they, they became tremendously active and exploratory. She was fascinated by the world. I mean, she woke up to a world of feeling and really to, you know, to a sense of objects. Um, First of all, uh, first of all, the shapes of objects. The shape of a bagel fascinated her. The shape of a shoehorn fascinated her. And also she had an impulse to reproduce. And she made a sculpture of a shoehorn, which, um, uh, which had sort of chunky flowing curves and it sort of almost reminded me of her, of an early Henry Moore. And then within a month, she had to go on to people. She she had really a compulsion to feel the heads and bodies of people around her. It was very extraordinary to be felt by her. And she started making sculptures of people, of, of heads. These were usually about half size, and they were sort of full of creative energy. And she sort of became, uh, she became our, our blind sculptress. She became a sculptor then. Yeah. Um, the... 
um, not not great, but but pretty good and and, and absolutely remarkable because, um, I mean, first, um, I wouldn't have believed it possible that powers of perception not acquired in the first months of life could be acquired at the age of sixty. Um, the first there was just a feeling of of that even being deeply handicapped for you for decades might not yeah. stand in the way of some sort of therapy. And second, how a totally unexpected yeah. artistic power yeah. might come out late in life. Since you mentioned that how a totally unexpected artistic power may come, I was about to go to the old carpenter level. Well, perhaps that might be good. And then later we'll come to the artist, artist, Jose. So just as she, in a sense, well, with your help, of course, and suggestion, healed herself, found an attribute, a facility she never dreamed she had at the age of 60. So the old carpenter, he, he was, he'd walk on a tilt without realizing it, right? Um, yeah, the, um, uh, sometimes I, I don't do any more than, than provoke. <laughs> this, I, I listen and I, and I provoke. You know, with, the, with the old carpenter, McGregor, uh, this is a, in another old age home. He, he was a he was a fine, um, strong old man in his nineties, but he looked twenty years younger. And he, I said, what's the problem? And he says, um, people told him that he was walking on a tilt, that he was canted over to one side. He said he didn't think he was. He didn't he didn't feel it. He didn't know why they were saying it. I I often use. A, a tape recorder, a video recorder, and I, I said, can I take a picture of, of you walking and play it back? And you, you, you judge for yourself. I did this and I, I played it back to him and uh, his, his jaw, his mouth fell open with astonishment and he, he says, they're right. He says, I, 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 I tilted way over. He says, but I don't feel it. Now, I love to see a patient thinking out what has happened and what might be done. He said, uh, there must be something in the brain, he says normally, which, which tells you if you're, if you're upright or tilted. And he used to be a carpenter and he talked about a, a bubble level. He says it's the sort of bubble level in the brain. A level? A level in the brain. Uh, in England, they call it a spirit level. In America, a bubble level. And he, I said, yes. And he said, could this be, uh, could this or, or could its use be, uh, be affected by Parkinson's disease, which was what he had. And I said, yes, this, this, this did happen. And so he asked for a mirror to be brought in front of him. And, uh, and he says, well, I can see myself tilting there. He says, but I can't, I can't carry a mirror around. And then he thought, it was, it was very moving to see this, and, and this old man of 93 with, with great thick white eyebrows and his, his gnarled hands, and he, uh, uh, what he worked out was this. He says if he couldn't use the level inside his head, maybe one could make a level outside his head. You mean a carpenter's level? Yes, yeah. And, and, uh, and I said, yeah, I said I thought that was a, uh, a brilliant idea. And we, we experimented together, and, uh, and there was a, a workshop there uh, who were all set up. And um, uh, he wore glasses, and um, we originally 
tried with little threads hanging from the rim of the glasses, but that was too close. We finally made a device which came out two nose lengths, about, about five or six inches in front of him, which were really two little carpenter's levels. Um, it looked a bit bizarre at first, but um, uh, and first of all, he started using this. Uh, his eyes would would cross. Look cockeyed. Look cockeyed, and and sort of like 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 a captain staring at the binnacle of a ship. Uh, but watching this, he could monitor his own walking, and then and then it sort of started to become second nature to him. And so he walked direct now. He walked straight. Yes. And, uh, and he would use... Observing that level. Yes. So he called upon his craft Yes. that he retired from years ago, the carpenter. Yes. He called upon his craft, his skill, his memory of that, and that helped cure him of walking on a tilt. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and he saw this basic analogy and... I think the best sort of medicine is that which is in which at least half of it is done by the patient. Self-healing. We may not have time to talk about the twins, the idiot savants, who, incredible tale, and witty Tiki Ray, who has something called Tourette's. We'll come to that. But I think Jose, the autist artist, since you're talking about a certain kind of attribute or a skill or an art that the patient may have, but others will not recognize it unless they listen to him or watch him. Jose was autistic, was he not? Um, yeah, well, he, he was a, um, a young man who came in as an emergency uh, to a state hospital I work at over the weekend. I was called in as a neurologist because he'd been having seizures constantly. And I prescribed some medication over the phone and then I went in that evening. I didn't have much information then. Uh, he came down with an attendant who said, no use talking to him, he said, he, he, he's an idiot. He said that they say he's autistic, but, but he's just an idiot. I like to listen to patients. I like to watch them. I like to see them paint or draw if they can. And um, at one point, I... Um, Jose let me examine him in a, in a passive way. He seemed sort of inert. And then rather suddenly I gave him a pen and I, I pulled out my watch. I, I always carry a pocket watch with me. Um, the original one, which is figured in the book, I gave to Jose. This is its successor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and suddenly everything changed and his, his face lit up. He took the watch sort of, sort of, um, you know, as if it was something very precious and beautiful, interesting. And he drew it, um, uh, putting in uh, all sorts of, of affectionate and, and, and comic details and sometimes with little... You have an illustration uh, of it here in yes. your book. And uh, I thought this was, was, was very remarkable and I was sort of haunted by it. Um, uh, it uh, you know sort of somehow by the iconography of this of this strange thing. And As you're saying that the attendant is saying, what are you do? What are you doing with him? He's an idiot. Yeah, um, yeah, uh. yeah. The, the attendant said that. Um, when he said it, um, Jose looked very uncomfortable. Mm. The attendant also says he doesn't understand words. This may have been so, but he certainly understood the tone, yeah. the feeling tone. He understood the tone. Yes. Feeling tone. Uh, and as he saw there, there was contempt or whatever, and, and that. Whereas uh, um, 
How much he understood of me, I don't know. I pantomimed things. I put a pen in his hands. I gave things. But but he could see that I was encouraging, and I wanted him, you know, to open out. I um, I, I was sort of haunted by this, and then I went up to. Uh, by then his seizures had been controlled and I wasn't called again as a neurologist, but I, I wanted to see what went on with this strange, speechless person who, you know, with the, you know, and whom quite out of the blue this, this strange gift had come up. I had a magazine with me. I, uh, it was a, actually a magazine called Arizona Highways. I lived in Arizona for some time. I think it had wonderful landscape photography. I had a copy with me, and I um, first I showed him the front of the magazine, which was a, uh, a picture of a, an idyllic picture of a canoe on a lake, and he he took one intense look at this, and then and then he started to really a sort of stunning rendition. I mean, it was not only absolutely accurate, but it was somehow it was more alive mm. than the original. Right the, here, it is. Yes. It's very active. You, <laughs> yeah. you have the act. You have a reproduction of the illustration Arizona Highways, and you have Jose's interpretation. Very alive. Yes. You know, the intense postures, and, the, and and then there was a picture of a fish, or there was and a the rainbow uh, trout. Yes. This is something out of a fairy tale. Isn't it wonderful? But, yeah. uh, what does he do? He reproduces, he, he draws the rainbow trout, becomes human and funny, yes. and, uh, uh, whimsical. Yes. It's said sometimes that, um, uh, you know, people talk about idiot savants or freak abilities, but somehow playfulness or uh, an imagination are not, are not expected in the, in the autistic or the retarded. And it was exactly playfulness and imagination, you know, which, which made the, this, this wonderful human fish, you know, almost like the frog footman and, and Alice. Um, some of the so stories started to come out. It was a rather, was a rather frightening and sad story. Uh, it was said that he had been normal until the age of uh, seven or eight. Um, there was obviously some artistic talent in the family. His, an older brother was a professional artist, and when he was a child, his father would take him out sketching. He then had some strange illness, an encephalitis of some sort, probably, and following this, he, he, he had terrible, constant convulsions. He lost language, and, um, and he became very strange and, and mm -hmm. autistic what was called autistic. But with your meeting him and encouraging him in this way, though called idiot by others, mm. something happened. He revived it. And you could see him doing illustrations for some zoology text. Oh, yeah. Well, at one point, sort of, I thought I would give him something which, which didn't mean anything. I, I, I brought him a copy of Gray's Anatomy. I opened it, and there was a, uh, a picture of uh, a microscopic picture of, of some ciliated epithelium. Um, uh, magnified 257 times. But but even this, he sort of, uh, he did both accurately but yeah. also funnily. And um, I think there are real powers here. He was, he was in a way shut away for, for many years. And these, you know, this is an untutored gift. I don't think that he has general concepts in his mind, but I think his percepts uh, his rendition of particulars but is very is pure and remarkable. He, right at the moment, he's doing something. He's doing sign painting and lettering and illustrations. Yes. 
in the ward, isn't he? Yes. I, I mean, he can't read. For him, letters are simply yeah. designs and, you know, of a beautiful I think sort. just as Madeline, the old lady with cerebral palsy blind, has now become the sculptress, he's become the sign painter there, the yes. illustrator there. So something is happening here. You see that something buried, long buried, adornment, suddenly springing yeah. into life, into being. Um, I hope it, it may alter his life, which, which on the whole has been lost to disease and isolation yeah. for so long. You know, Dr. Oliver Sacks, we can't end this, well, this is the second half of the program that began yesterday, and based upon several of his books, uh, the latest one is The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat and Other Clinical Tales, now published in the United States by Summit. With the president's speech, even though we talked about this in a previous program, you mentioned feeling tone. That's something that may distinguish flesh and blood beings from a computer. Feeling tone. Suppose you read the opening passage of this chapter called The President's Speech, and then take off from there. Um, you read it. I'll read it. Okay. What was going on? A roar of laughter from the aphasia ward just as the president's speech was coming on. And they had all been so eager to hear the president speaking. There he was, the old charmer, the actor with his practiced rhetoric, his histrionisms, his emotional appeal. And all the patients were convulsed with laughter. Well, not all. Some looked bewildered, some looked outraged, one or two looked apprehensive, but most looked amused. The president was always moving, but he was moving them, apparently, mainly to laughter. What could they be thinking? Were they failing to understand him, or do they perhaps understand him all too well? I, I think I should say here that um, I, I'm pretty much without political feeling myself, and this is a, a clinical observation, and it's what I saw with my patients in response to a performance. And um, in aphasia, which goes with uh, disease or damage uh, to the language parts of the brain and the left hemisphere of the brain, people use the, the use and understanding of words and propositions um, uh, while, while retaining all their sensitivity to, to the expression uh, in which these are uttered, and also all the, the gestures and the intonations and everything else. I, I think the sensitivity can can be enhanced. Uh, I've sometimes felt one one can't tell a lie or one can't sort of put anything over to an aphasiac because these tiny little incongruities and cues of facial expression he will instantly pick up. On the one hand, he he can't hear the words which may be consciously or unconsciously deceiving. And on the other hand, he can see, he is, he is preternaturally sensitive to the expressions and the intonations which are the real uh, sign of, uh, of the authentic or the inauthentic. Aphasic patients themselves, sometimes when they try to speak, uh, are, full of, uh, are full of very vivid gestures. So the words have no meaning to them, but the extra-verbal aspects, yes. the sense. So it's feeling. Use the word feeling tone, which is an old-time word, which, mm. as you know, I've heard an old a black woman use in the South. So uh, they have that something. They hear a feeling tone, just as Jose 
the autist artist heard that attendant, he knew that tone had something of contempt to it. Um, well, we, uh, I mean, we all normally and naturally hear feeling tone. I would think we hear feeling tone uh, um, long before we, you know, as, as infants, long before we understand words. We, we know if we're being loved or hated or scolded or joked with. Um, so Henry Head, the, the teacher of your father and Jonathan Miller's father, yes. used that phrase. Yeah, um, uh, um, uh, Henry Head wrote a, wrote a wonderful uh, treatise on, uh, on aphasia in, in which he, he, see, he is almost equally interested in, in verbal powers. Also, he constantly uses the phrase feeling tone and the, and the strange sense this, this may give to aphasiacs. So they were laughing at a serious speech. Uh, well, yes. Uh, what exactly they were feeling, I, I don't know. Uh, they couldn't tell me, but they somehow found it a subject for laughter. Um, now, we, we have some other patients uh, um, on, on the same floor. Um, sometimes, rightly or wrongly, I may put we may bring together, say, our patients with cerebral palsy on one floor, our patients with Parkinsonism, our patients with, with language disorders. Um, we had a patient, a, um, uh, she'd been a gifted woman, uh, an English teacher and a, and a writer of poetry. Um, called Emily D. Yes, and um, uh, her problem was really in the corresponding parts of the brain on the other side, on the, in the right hemisphere. And with her, as with such patients, the recognition of words was perfectly preserved, but what was lost was the recognition of feeling tone. Now, she was um, uh, aware of this, and to compensate for this, she required of herself and of others that they speak more and more precisely. And she would quote Swift's definition of, of prose as, as proper words in proper places. And she, she was also um, rather discomposed by, by the president's speech. So she couldn't tell. She had no feeling tone, no. as the aphasiacs did, but she was, and they didn't understand words. She understood words very well, but, but didn't have the feeling tone that they had. Yeah. Now, she was unhappy with the president's yes. speech for the opposite, for another reason. Yes, and she... Um, she couldn't use the the cue of feeling tone, but uh, but language use was 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 very very precisely identified by her, and she says he doesn't speak good prose, his uh, his his language use is improper. She said, either he is brain damaged or he has something to conceal, and thus, as you write, as Oliver Sacks writes, who by the way is apolitical. Thus, the president's speech did not work for Emily D. either. Due to her enhanced sense of formal language use, propriety as prose, any more than it did for our aphasiacs, with the word deafness but enhanced sense of tone. And you end that chapter with this passage. Here, then, was the paradox of the president's speech. We normals, aided doubtless by a wish to be fooled, or indeed well and truly fooled, and so cunningly was deceptive word use combined with deceptive tone that only the brain damaged remained intact, undeceived. Well, then, incredible. You were there at that moment. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, yes. 
um, no, a, a lot of my pieces um, are, are inspired by particular scenes or moments, yeah. whether it was the hat uh, or, or Jose drawing the clock or, or the aphasic patients talking. I don't plan them very no. much. They, they suddenly take form. The spontaneity. Yeah. Out of the spontaneity is his is, is revelation. Well, this is by way of an hour and a half, and uh, more hours we'll have with Dr. Oliver Sachs. Uh, you mentioned the books, all of which are remarkable to read, and most of the insights too. But the, there's a thrill here when you discover something. You hear of things, and the fusion of neurology, the medical world, and the naturalist world, and fuse that to the language of a poet and a writer. A masterpiece, W.H. Auden spoke of awakenings, and this could be said of his other books too. And they're available now. Migraine has been revised, and that's published by the University of California Press. And his own experience, A Leg to Stand On, which you learn through your own <laughs> trauma, uh, the most recent one, the one now published by Summit in the United States, is The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat and Other Clinical Tales published by Summit. This is by way of thanking you. Any uh, postscript you feel like offering Oliver Sacks? I hope there'll be some future books and they will be postscripts. Everything is postscript. Uh, at the moment I'm uh, enjoying a course, well it's not a course, it's really a sort of conversation with students at Sarah Lawrence and our theme is being alive and uh, I hope that if, if, it's, if it's given to me to write another book uh, its theme and title will be Being Alive. Thank you very much. Thank you.